Hi, everyone. Welcome. It's a big episode 33 of UConn 360. That's the only podcast in the world that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. And as we reach you, it's only a few days after commencement. Congratulations to all our graduates. Probably have more on that later. My name's Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. Joining me, as always, are Ken Best. I am here. And Julie Bartuka. You said his name first. I like to change it up. Mm, it hasn't happened in a while. I like to, I like to keep... It normally goes alphabetical order. Right. I like to keep people guessing. You do. All of our surnames begin with B. I know. It's weird. We should capitalize on that. Triple B. Too late. Yeah, too late. We have an excellent program for you. I'm very excited to get into it. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to get into some Husky headlines. Julie. Hi. What's going on? (laughs) Well, the Yukon Foundation has a new president and CEO, effective May 28th. Scott M. Roberts is currently the vice president for philanthropy and alumni engagement and president of the UNLV Foundation at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Roberts replaces John Fodor, a 1985 alumni of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, who has served as interim president and CEO since August 2018 when Joshua R. Newton stepped down. Under Roberts' leadership, the UNLV Foundation set an all-time annual fundraising record of $93 million in fiscal year 2017 and was honored by the Council of Advancement and Support for Education for overall performance and overall improvement in fundraising activity in 2018. Susan Herbst, outgoing president, said in the announcement of Roberts' hiring that he was very much a standout candidate who articulated a clear and compelling vision for the future of philanthropy at UConn and a roadmap for getting there. Congratulations, Scott, and welcome to Stores. Welcome, Scott. Ken, what, uh, what news News out of our English department, which is very well known and highly respected. Uh, Two of our professors have been recognized by the Poetry Society of America with uh, major awards. Uh, Assistant Professor in Residence Darcy Dennigan was named the winner of the inaugural Anna Rabinowitz Prize for her play The Happy End, which is described as an athletic performance piece. And it's an adaptation of Monica Del Torre's collection of poems, The Happy End, All Welcome, which was performed last year at the Woolbury Theater as part of the Providence Fringe Festival. And this new award is awarded to poets and their collaborators for venturesome interdisciplinary work made in the previous year that combines poetry and any other art or discipline. Professor Emerita Marilyn Nelson, who has been honored many times over for her poetry, where she examines complex topics not usually discussed in poetry, including race, feminism, and the ongoing trauma of slavery. She's also known for her work in children's literature and was the Connecticut Poet Laureate from 2001 to 2006. Next month in Chicago at the Pegasus Award Ceremony, Professor Nelson will receive the 2019 Ruth Lilly Poetry Prize, which is one of the most prestigious awards given to American poets and honors a living poet for a lifetime of work. It is also one of the nation's largest literary prizes with a $100,000 award. Nice. So congratulations to Professors Dennigan and Nelson. Yeah, very nice. I have some news from the sports world, Mm. the sports spectator world, I guess. Starting in the fall, UConn students with a student ID will have free entry to home games for the men's and women's basketball team, the men's and women's soccer teams, the football team, the men's hockey team, and others. Very, very cool. I think that's the smart move. I think so, too. It's, I don't know that it's common at universities, but there are other universities that do things like this. Got to get students in seats, it man. It used to yep. be when I was in school. Yeah. But that was a long time ago. I was going to make a not nice comment about when that was, but um, I'll refrain. Last, let's just say it was the last century. The most, say when. the most important headline, though, is actually an in-house headline. We, we have among us here you guys. a graduate. 
a, a diploma receiver. She, she will have walked across the stage before uh, you right. hear this. Yeah. Congratulations to Yukon 360's own Julie Bartuka, who's now a master. I am a master of none. Of a master of business administration? Yeah. Uh, with a concentration in marketing? Management. Management. I'm going to be your boss one day. That's fine. Well, kind of now, actually. <laughs> so, so you won't no longer be the facilitator of sorts. No, yeah. I know. Thank you. That was sweet. Congratulations. That was a surprise. Surprise headline. Well, I had surprise. to figure out how to get the sound into yeah, the board was, first. Yeah, that was good. I was wondering why you had that iPad. We're incredibly okay. high tech. Mm-hmm. We can't turn it off, though. It's going to go under the rest <laughs> the of episode. the No, yeah, we, we, so. we, we, we can do that. We Thank can do that. you. Yes, we I'm can, very we excited. We can stop it now. Stop That's it. excellent. Stop it. Stop it. It's a, I know this was a long, hard road. It was. How long did it take? It took me over three years. Oh. Yeah. It was It was pretty cool, though. But now you're a, experience. you're a double grad. Yeah. Well, I'm kind of... I'm kind of a triple grad. I have two bachelor's degrees. Wow. <laughs> Humble brag. Say, can we say overachiever? Yeah, yeah just no. a little bit. I'm a nerd is what I am. Well, hey, but, but you know what? But you're our nerd. You're exactly. I am. Oh, thanks. Thank you very much. Well, why don't we uh, why don't we start with you, then, okay. nerd, um, nerd, and uh, the story you've prepared for our listeners. This student makes me look like an underachiever, I will say. I caught up with Wajiku Gateru, who is the first student in Yukon history to win the prestigious Truman Scholar and Udall Scholar National Awards in the same year. When we spoke, she hadn't yet received the Udall Award, which was just announced, so you won't hear about that in the piece. The Truman Award was given by the Harry S. Truman Scholarship Foundation to just 62 students nationwide this year, and it's presented to undergraduates who have devoted themselves to public service. And the Udall Scholarship is given to college sophomores and juniors for leadership, public service, and commitment to issues related to Native American nations or to the environment, and that was presented to just 55 students from 50 colleges and universities this year. Gateru competed in the scholarship's environmental category, which selected 38 of the 55 scholars nationwide for its 2019 class. She's a true leader here on campus, and she's been recognized for it many other times as well. In addition to these honors I just mentioned, she was a 2018 UC Santa Cruz Doris Duke Conservation Scholar, a 2018 Newman Civic Fellow, a United Nations Global Health Fellow, a delegate at the 2017 UN climate change discussions. I'm, I'm going to keep going because there's more. A founding member of the President's Council on Race and Diversity and a lead organizer in Connecticut's first Youth Climate Lobby Day. So listen up and we'll learn a little bit more about Wawa. Okay, so my name's Wajiko Katero. Friends call me Wawa. And I'm a junior here at UConn and I'm an environmental studies major. Congratulations. You're here because you were just named a Truman Scholar. So you're the second consecutive UConn student to be named a Truman Scholar, which I think was the first time in 30 years or so. Yeah, that's, that's super exciting. Very yeah, exciting. <laughs> so it's a public service award. Tell me about some of your involvement in that area. I think first and foremost, also just because I just came from the USG office, I'm the vice president of the undergraduate student government. I'm actually being sworn out tomorrow. Oh. I'm very emotional about it. So that has been a role that has been the culmination of a multitude of different roles in student government, from being a senator my freshman year to being student services chairperson person sophomore year and now being the vice president of, of the student body and that has been an incredible experience you she's completely changed my life from being able to advocate for students with administration through things like the environmental literacy general education requirement tampon time which is like free menstrual products on campus to um, working with purchasing on you know um, lessening the amount of plastic water bottles on campus to even including halal meat on more UC cafes on campus so it's been an incredible experience and that's really been at the forefront of public service for me on campus. 
Those are some amazing accomplishments. I didn't know you were kind of leading the charge on all those. That's great. The environmental studies requirement. What was your involvement in that? How did you? Yeah. So um, I also first want to say that was a combination of so many different people and moving parts. We had a lot of EB department involvement from the students, um, namely students that had graduated now. Brent Breslaw, who was the environmental Metanoia chair last year. He was also a fellow intern at the OEP with me, Office of Environmental Policy, as well as Nick Russo, other students leading the charge, as well as people like Dr. Clausen, Eric Schultz, so many different people. Um, and basically that was taking advantage of the fact that the general education requirement was potentially going to be redone completely and seeing that as an opportunity to include environmental literacy within that framework because it's just such an important and pressing matter to discuss and have students you know be literate in and it was successful after over two years so that was really incredible to be able to have seen it just grow from a freshman to being a junior now. That's amazing I didn't realize that students were really behind that that's very cool. How did you kind of find out that public service and being an advocate for others was what you wanted to do. You know, what's really interesting is I've never considered a path that wasn't public service. I probably didn't have the definition for public service just then. But, you know, growing up, my mom's a nurse, like everyone in my family's a nurse. My dad has a company that connects nurses to home care. And my entire family has been invested in health care and helping people. So for me, always seeing that and having that around me and being a part of that environment, I've always, you know, just thought that my career was going to be through health helping people and really the point where I was able to like get the specific language of public service and working specifically in government was um, I was a Kennedy Luger Youth Exchange and Study Scholar with the State Department my senior year of high school and through that meeting so many different foreign service officers and just like understanding that initiative that came out of 9-11 and seeing the role that public servants and bureaucrats and ambassadors have in representing the United States and the values of this country I, I just saw myself in that and was like, this is what I want to do. So with this scholarship, what do you hope it helps you accomplish? Well, I'm so excited to meet the other Truman Scholars within my cohort and outside of my cohort. So um, I was super lucky to have met some of the scholars during our finalist interviews, and we hit it off, and we're going to be meeting again for the Truman Scholar Summer Week that we have, Summer Leadership Week. And then actually next summer, not this upcoming summer, there's a Summer Institute where we'll all be together from all the different states interning in D.C. So I'm excited to be around other young people that are interested in making a difference, interested in making the world a better place and dedicating their lives to public service. You kind of talked about it with USG, but how have the opportunities here at UConn helped you kind of delve into what you're passionate about? You know, I came to UConn knowing that I was interested in being involved in environmentalism. However, I never saw myself as being the vice president of the student body. I never saw myself doing research. I never saw myself interning at the Office of Environmental Policy. I didn't know those things were available, let alone in existed. So for me, it's really been about having no expectations and kind of just like taking things as they come. And I came to UConn 
I'm still very much of an introvert. I don't come off as one, but I'm very introverted. But I was more shy when I came to UConn, and I and I, I questioned my leadership. And I think that's still, you know, something that I work on. But UConn has really shown me that I can be a leader, and I can be a leader in public service, and I can be a leader in making change on campus, off campus. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but Absolutely. it's been very instrumental for me. What is your research about? What do you do research on? I'm not currently in a research lab, but the summer after my freshman year, I did research in the nutritional sciences department with Dr. Amy Mobley, part of the Bridging the Gap Fellows program. We did community nutrition work and specifically food insecurity research, and that's what got me into UCAFE and understanding food insecurity as a national epidemic on a college level. And I stayed in her lab the following year, my sophomore year, and then I applied for an IDEA grant and did a, a research project of food insecurity on UConn store students. What did you find? We found that food insecurity is an issue at UConn, and UConn is not, you know, alone in this. This is a national epidemic. And it was very timely. The Government Accountability Office recently released a report on January 9th of this year actually calling food insecurity on college campuses a national epidemic wow. and calls for more research and for more institutional support. So that's that's what we found. And hopefully we're going to be working on that more in the upcoming years. Is that what you hope to kind of do after college? You know, um, I, I think I, I consider food insecurity <laughs> issues, hunger issues to be um, under the umbrella of environmentalism. I am specifically very interested in environmental justice issues. So I do consider food access issues to be in that. So if an opportunity arises where I'm able to be engrossed in those things, like for sure, yeah, I would do that. What are your plans for once you graduate here? Once I graduate, um, I'm taking it day by day. So <laughs> I, I just know um, I'm going to be studying abroad at the University of Hong Kong in the fall. Wow. Yeah. I don't even know what happens in the spring semester after that. But afterwards, I just want to be able to be just completely saturated in, in working with people and working to help people see their fullest potential and advocating on the behalf of themselves and being involved in environmental decision making and just really being a part of environmental justice. That's what I want to see myself doing? Do I have a name for what that looks like exactly? No, but hopefully the future will bring that. Kind of on a random note, what's something that people might not know about you? Um, I'm a singer. Ooh. Yeah. Shameless plug. Freshman year, Subog, back when they had an arts committee, they hosted a The Voice Yukon competition and I won. You did? Yes. Yeah, so um, technically I'm the voice of Yukon still. I love to sing. I've been singing and writing music since I could talk. So that's something that I do to de-stress and just... It's a part of who I am. That's great. Are you in any groups on campus? No, no. no you know, yourself? it's probably one of my biggest regrets, not joining college acapella. I think you're a little busy. Yeah. <laughs> that was really good. And, uh, she's amazing. I had the chance to prepare some bios of our honors graduates this year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, boy. It just made me realize what a sloth I was. <laughs> really? Like, you think I was we're, an overachiever? We're all underachievers when we, we are. listen like, to these kids. It's crazy. They, they should actually kind of take my diploma they back. They should just, right. Should just, I shouldn't count as a graduate. Don't even. These guys are amazing. Ken, what do, you, uh, what do you have for us this week? I think listeners will recall that I've been uh, talking for some time about Professor Ryan Watson, and I've been working on stories for the last couple of years, actually, about a study 
that he and other researchers have done in cooperation with the Human Rights Campaign, surveying more than 17,000 LGBTQ teenagers across the United States using an online questionnaire. The 2017 LGBTQ National Teen Study was conducted by Human Development and Family Sciences Professor Ryan Watson and Rebecca Poole of UConn's Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity with their colleague Christopher Weldon of the National Cancer Institute. Some of this research has been in the national media, but the first academic paper was recently published in the Journal of Research on Adolescence. The study found that a large portion of sexual and gender minority youth do not identify with traditional sexual identity labels such as gay, lesbian, and bisexual. Instead, teenagers participating in the study described previously little understood sexual identities using emerging labels such as pansexual, non-binary, or asexual. This new study on how minority youth identify themselves is one of the first published in an academic journal. It looks at enough data among minority to see patterns in their experiences. Professor Watson visited our studios at UConn 360 to discuss the study. The Journal of Research on Adolescence has your latest findings from this study. How did this all come about? My colleague, Dr. Rebecca Poole, and I saw that in the literature and in the in the data world, there was not data that could capture the experiences of this growing population, LGBTQ young people. So all the data that used to that has existed uh, focuses on this population as a homogenous or monolithic population. And we noted a need to start to understand, the complexity and the intersections of multiple identities of young people. Dr. Poole and I partnered with a human rights campaign, which is the largest organization in the in the world that tries to better the lives of LGBTQ people. And so they're not researchers per se, but they are interested in collecting data, understanding what we need to do to serve LGBTQ people. The neat thing about human rights campaign is they have connections with millions and millions of people across the United States. They have something like 3 million followers on on Facebook. They reach more than that uh, in terms of numbers of people on Instagram and Twitter. And so they were able to advertise our study in ways that we could not as researchers. We put together a scientific survey, which included dozens of scales looking at depression, self-esteem, bullying, things like this. We figured out what are the best measures that we can capture the experiences of LGBTQ young people. And then we put it out in the field. And it was out there for about six or eight months. This was in 2017. And since that time, we've been putting together reports. We've been publishing papers. And this paper you referenced is the first academic paper that has been published that has introduced the data. Now, you found early on about really the life of these teens. They report that they have trouble sleeping at night, that they feel depressed, as you, as you just mentioned. And then there's also the feeling of isolation and rejection and the issues that are popping up in public about public use of bathrooms or transgender youth. What were the early findings beyond that that you noticed needed to be explored further with the data that you had? Some people might say, why collect more data? We already have a lot of data out there. We surveyed 17,112 young people, 13 to 17-year-old LGBTQ youth. What we already know that's out there in the literature is that this population as a whole experiences problems like you just mentioned, higher rates of depression, lower self-esteem, harder times at school getting better grades or fitting in. But we didn't know 
which subgroups or which individual groups of LGBTQ people were at most risk. So when folks talk about this, they, they say LGBTQ or they'll say gay or they'll say queer people are at risk or they have more problems. But the, the umbrella, the landscape of these identities are, is very broad. And so we know that from the survey that there were 26 different identities endorsed when we think of LGBTQ. Most people just think of gay, lesbian, bisexual, but there were thousands and thousands of teens who said they were pansexual, who said they were asexual, who said they were queer. So the findings we first focused on were, are the experiences in health at school, are they different based off of which of those individual identities they picked? Uh, so I'll start with sexual orientation. We found some very different experiences for bisexual kids, for example, than gay kids. We found that transgender kids and non-binary kids, and those are folks who don't identify as the sex they were assigned at birth, those kids are doing the worst. They, they have even uh, worse outcomes than their LGB kids. And those kids, transgender and non-binary folks, are more likely to say that they are pansexual compared to gay, bisexual, lesbian. One of the first things, the most interesting things we found is that those youth with these emerging identities, and I'm, I'm using that term to say pansexual, queer, those youth are more likely to be transgender or non-binary, and those youth are more likely to have more negative outcomes, worse experiences at school. So, so one of the first things we did was document all of those different identity labels. Those identity labels are, in fact, really the, the primary uh, headline out of this uh, Journal of Research on Adolescence study that has just been published earlier this year. Why is that so significant that you were able to really get such a strong statement about how people want to identify themselves? That's a great question. We have very little evidence of how common, how ubiquitous some of these emerging labels are. So one, we wanted to just document that you know, it's not just a couple kids out there who are saying they have this identity called pansexual, which many folks aren't aware of. Many people don't even know what that means. Um, so we want. What to, does it mean? All right. So, good question. So, pansexual is this idea that you're attracted to all people, all genders, regardless of if they're a boy, a girl, if they're non-binary, if they're trans. It's kind of juxtaposed with bisexual. A long time we've thought of bisexual as you're attracted to men and women. Pansexual is acknowledging that for some people there's more than just men and women. There's also folks who say, I don't fall in that binary. I'm not a 100% man or 100% woman. I'm somewhere between or I'm off of that binary. So pansexual acknowledges, and for thousands of kids in our study, that they love just people. They just love people for who they are. You don't necessarily have to say, I only like boys, and so this is the type of person I like. So yeah, so that was really interesting. We saw that many kids saying that, that there are these identities that some people have never heard of. To a lot of people, this seems to be a millennial a trend, if, if you will. Does that make sense in the information that you're finding from these teens because they are millennials? And if so, how does that differ from what you observe or what the literature says from previous studies of people who identify as gay, lesbian, or trans? What we try to say in our study is, though we're identifying these emerging terms and emerging labels like pansexual, like non-binary, I would say it's not necessarily a millennial 
thing. It's not something that they've developed or thought of. It's just that millennials today are living in a society where they're more able to adopt terms that people are okay with. They're more able to express their sexual identities in new ways. I mean, even a century ago, gay, lesbian, bisexual was unknown. Like we, we, we weren't using those terms. It was more basically straight and then the other. But I think we can see now adults starting to understand, adopt some of these labels, even older LGBTQ folks saying, actually, maybe that is a term that's always described me. Now I finally can uh, relate to a certain kind of group because gay never really described me. We have new terms to bring more awareness to old ideas, I think. One of the highest profile uh, individuals right now is Asia Kate Dillon, who when her character was introduced on the Showtime show Billions was right out there about how she wanted to be described. Does this help uh, the way people in this generation who are identifying as LGBTQ to get their message out as well? So representation is one of the most important protective factors or experiences that LGBTQ people can have is to see someone that's like them out in the media. Starting a decade ago, it was a rare you didn't see a TV show that had some kind of gay or you know non-heterosexual character. Where I think the issue is is the trope is usually that that's the jokes on that character or you know the the problems are with that character and and they have to overcome something. Representation is great. I hope that representation continues to be in a positive light uh, and and we're able to see a diverse set of identities. Uh, beyond just gay, lesbian, bisexual, but also including maybe pansexual, also including non-binary. We see this in shows like Transparent on Amazon Prime or other shows where uh, we have main act, big actors playing these newish kind of identities you've never seen before on TV. Professor Watson was just recently honored with the Institute for Collaboration on Health Intervention and Policy, known here as INCHIP, their first-ever Junior Faculty Research Excellent Award, and it is well-deserved. He's been doing uh, all this work for the last couple of years, and actually the second study in an academic journal, this one, the American Academy of Pediatrics on the Risk of Sexual Violence for Transgender Youth, has just been published in uh, Professor Watson is one of the collaborators on that as well. So he's been very busy. Wow. I'm just really proud that we have people here working on these issues that are kind of, you know, some of the major civil rights issues of our time and facing youth today as things that we never thought about before. So very, very exciting. I also want to encourage all faculty members and students we interviewed to come to our studio and do it because the sound will be really Sounds good. Sounds way better. You'll get to wear headphones and talk into a professional microphone. We've had great. lots of people here. Yeah, no, that's true. Interviews lately. Yeah, we're doing. Uh, we're we're getting the word out. <laughs> um, all right, so now it's time to turn to the past. And since we just had commencement, I prepared one of Julie's least favorite types of Tom's history corners, Uh-oh. which is kind of a survey of things that happened in the past. Why is my least favorite type? I don't know. You've complained about this in the past, <laughs> or maybe like once. And I it's just, just stuck like with when me. you have like a story yeah. arc, but that's just, this is good too. Oh boy. Okay. Well, <laughs> so I Sorry. I was interested in commencement programs. Mm. So I wanted to kind of see what the commencement programs from the past told us about the development of the university. The oldest one I could find, sadly, I could not find uh, the original 1883 commencement. They might mm. not have done one. I don't there know. There were only three students. There were six. They, it was six? probably on a concrete slab at it was that probably, point. I know. <laughs> it was like etched. Yeah, it's, it's etched into a cave somewhere. <laughs> that would have been wood for um, farmers. Oh, semantics. But the earliest one I could find was 1895. Wow. So commencement that year was on Friday, June 14th. And actually, mm. well into the 1970s, commencement at UConn was in mid-June. Okay. 
the start of the semester would be like late September. They had to farm. They did have, exactly. They did have to farm. <laughs> Um, this was back when we were called Stores Agricultural College, mm-hmm. and the program went like this. There was a processional song played by the college orchestra. The song, this is before Pomp and Circumstance became the default song for all graduations. The song was, See, the Conquering Hero Comes. Dang. Um, there was an opening prayer, which we don't have anymore. Very different. Although that mm-hmm. lasted long into the 60s. Really? Yep. Okay. There were a total of 14 graduates, and... Uh, Commencement was in two parts in those days. In the morning, there would be a session where each graduate had to deliver a paper that they wrote. That sounds like not a lot of fun. Uh, well, well, wait till you hear the topics. You're probably going to revise your opinion. <laughs> some of those topics included an exposition of vivisection. I don't know what that means. The college man in society. Okay. And agricultural colleges. Do they aid the farmer? <laughs> I would have loved to have been there if like, this student was just like, no, this is a waste of time. They threw tomatoes at him. Yeah, I know. And then there was afternoon exercises, which included a military drill of the students because military service was compulsory for male students. Wow. An address by N.J. Batchelder, who, of course, was the secretary of the New Hampshire Board of Agriculture. <laughs> what the heck was he doing here uh, in New the, Hampshire? Then the awarding of prizes and then the conferring of diplomas. That's a very long day. Yes, Ken. Vivisection. Okay, for those who go need for the it. definition, the practice of performing operations on live animals Ooh, for the yeah. purpose of experimentation or scientific research. Can you imagine, like, you go to sit on this lovely June day, and that's what it's you have hot. to listen to for a while. It's if you're indoor, hot. you're probably they were probably in the chapel. Like, oh boy, ugh. that's I thought my family was in for a long day on Saturday. Everyone's like in a wool suit, you know, oh, and just boy, fun. So five years later, this was our first commencement as Connecticut Agricultural College. Um, and things had changed a little bit. The uh, commencement was Wednesday, June 13th. And for the first time, there's a class motto, which was ever progressive, hmm. and class colors, which were purple and old gold. Interesting. Those are the colors of my co-ed honors fraternity really? that I was in. Huh. I, th- <laughs> I just assumed they were sort of uh, Lakers fans or people yeah, who had looked into totally. the future and saw the Los Angeles Lakers. Mm-hmm. The Lakers didn't exist. Well, these were they, they were ever progressive. So once again, there was an opening prayer followed by papers delivered by the 18 graduates, 10 of whom were women. Inclu- How long did that take? Can you imagine? Uh, some of the topics were the sea and some of its creatures. <laughs> that sounds like a first grade. We're landlocked in Connecticut. <laughs> Steam railway passenger traffic and plant diseases. And actually, there's one that I really wish had survived because I'd like to read it. It was called The College Girl in the Country Town. That does it's sound It's not good. in the archives? I couldn't find it if it is. And for the first time, uh, there are honor students named in the commencement program. Mm. In this case, Eva Bell Mason and Herman Dean Edmonds. So congratulations to the two of them who are long dead. And once again, there were afternoon exercises, including a commemorative address by Dr. Albert E. Winship of Boston, entitled Rascals and Saints. He was an education journalist at the is, time. Is the text around? Uh, probably not. He was the editor of the Journal of Education, which is the leading. It was kind of the uh, chronicle of higher ed of cool. its day. So I, no, I, I thought, okay, let's see what happened 20 years hence. First commencement after World War I, 1919. Mm-hmm. Saturday, June 21st. Wow. It's late. Late. This one was held in Holly Armory. Okay. Very hot, I'm sure. Very hot. There was no afternoon program. There were no speeches by the graduates. So this had all changed. We're, okay. we're starting to look more and more like a modern commencement. One thing that hadn't changed was that there were 18 graduates, the same as 1900. <laughs> wow. It took a long time for us to <laughs> grow. And predictably, there was a lot, kind of a martial theme to it. Um, all the students who had served in the war were listed in the program, whether they were graduates or not. And uh, the Beeman Hatch Orchestra provided tunes, inclu- and Ken, see if you have these on your iPad, <laughs> tunes including Her Soldier Boy, Bullets and Bayonets, and The Girl Behind the Gun. Oh. First, it's not an iPad. <laughs> Secondly, Forgive I'm me. not looking that up. Forgive me. 
And so the commencement address was given by George B. Chandler, who was a businessman from Ohio, uh, who I found testimony of his in the 1930s in Congress, in which he said that the establishment of Social Security would lead to the destruction of America. And our, our final commencement for this, uh, this survey was 1933, which was our 50th commencement, mm. and it was our first as Connecticut State College. Okay. Our name would change in 1939 to the University of Connecticut, which it still is today. Uh, this time, there were 113 graduates. And one graduate student, Harry Cecil Norcross, who got a master's in agricultural economics. Hmm. Congratulations, Harry. And this looks very much like a modern commencement. It starts with pomp and circumstance, the singing of America. There was a prayer, but then there was also an address by someone named Donald Adams of New Haven. Very hard to Google that. There's a lot. That's kind of a common <laughs> That's a pretty name. pretty common name, yeah. And then there were the awarding of commissions to the graduating ROTC students, conferring of prizes, awarding of degrees, a welcome to the alumni, and the singing of the alma mater. Very nice. Yeah, that does sound pretty. Other than the fact that we now have, what, 10, 12, 14 different ceremonies? Yeah, that's the thing. They used to be one ceremony for everybody, but as we got larger and larger and larger. there were 12 of them. <laughs> it's a little different today. Yeah, a few days ago, we handed out close to 8,000 degrees, uh, undergrads, grads, professional certification. Can't do that in one ceremony. You can't do that. And we don't even have one building big enough nope. for it. And also, uh, as a convention thing, go check out the uh, old main Twitter account. That's main underscore old. Dr. Sean Russell, who's a professor at Bangor University in mm. Wales, sent kind of an His family was in the tannery business for years, and he found some old family papers that in the 1950s, they supplied 40% of the world's parchment, which is sheepskin. That's where the mm -hmm. term the sheepskin comes from. The largest customers for parchment, not surprisingly, were American universities. Mm -hmm. And there was a sample of the diplomas they made, and it was the University of Connecticut. That's pretty degree. cool. So we have pictures of that, and thank you, Dr. Russell, for sharing that with us. Yeah, so that's it. Congratulations again to our grads, especially to Julie Bartuka, the triple grad. Thank you. Are you going to get a PhD? Uh, maybe someday. Yeah. You probably should just get four. <laughs> we can call, then we can call you Dr. Yeah, Bartuka. I would insist on it. Well, Dr. Bartuka, um, <laughs> is there anything you would like people to know? Well, as a doctor, medical doctor, <laughs> I would like to plug the latest Yukon Health Journal once again, which has some fantastic stories about actual doctors mm. and the actual doctor work they are doing. Over at UConn Health, that's at healthjournal.uconn.edu. And as always, I am on Twitter, spouting useless nonsense at Julie Bartuka, and I hope you all miss me while I'm on vacation. Yeah, have a good time on vacation. Thanks. Ken? I'll be on UConn today, <laughs> and at some point I will be on WHUS 91.7 on your FM dial. We're still working out the schedule. We'll know by the next time we're on the air. And I live in your hearts, as always. <laughs> Uh, once again, thanks for listening to us. We'll be back in two weeks, and we'll be here all summer. We're not taking the summer off. You're gonna, you're gonna get all the content you can handle from us, and more, maybe. Just, just keep saying things. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's my philosophy of broadcasting. Just keep saying things. Thank you, everyone. Have a good summer. They asked me to do it. I'm just going to try and enjoy it. <laughs>